Welcome to Astrology Hotline, the podcast where we answer your questions about your birth charts, about everything you want to know about astrology. I am all your burning questions. All of your <laughs> exactly. I am. Uh, I'm Tristan, and hosting with me is Kyle Pierce. Hello. How are you doing today? I'm. I'm doing really, really wonderful. I am loving uh, every minute of Mars uh, in Scorpio. Even the. Never mind. I'm. Uh, I love all of it. I literally love all of it. Please don't hurt me, Mars. Please. <laughs> Yeah, nothing, nothing bad to say at all. Nothing bad to say. I love Mars. About Mars, Mars is my best going friend. Through my fifth house, where my ascendant mm. ruler is. I'm pretty sure. I'm actually. I think I'm going to rewrite astrology because I'm. I'm. I'm convinced that Mars is a, a benefic. It's <laughs> always just delivering the goods and, and the sweetness. I mean, if the goods are in the form of like mild mania, then yeah, I've got that. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I've got that in oh, yeah. spades. Yeah. Yeah, the mania. I like it. Thanks, Mars. Can't wait for that opposition with Uranus. <laughs> anyway, how are you, Tristan? I, I'm in the same boat as you, really. Just uh, experiencing, you know, the only two Mars emotions, which are <laughs> um, over-enthusiastic happiness and uh, rage. <laughs> There's it's, just, a... it's just those two. <laughs> yeah. uh, I'm thinking of this series of books that I read. Ah, oh, man, it's killing me what they're called now. It's a show now on Netflix. It's not like it's Anglo-Saxon. He's like raised by Vikings. But the books are all just like about this dude fighting all the time. And he's always talking about battle joy. Like, oh, Ooh. yeah, once I like stab the first dude you know get under his shield and i just you know i stab him in the, in the balls or something and I'm, I'm just like oh yeah now the battle joy's on and then it's and then then it's madness and he just slaughters everyone and that's like his favorite thing and i think that's what that is the joy of mars that is the joy of mars yeah that is a kind of joy and you know you don't necessarily have to stab someone to get it you can have that battle joy when you're cleaning i find yep when you're in the Whenever right you're, mode you're on a mission yeah. You've got to be in the heat of the moment on a mission, and then you get that frenzy. Oh, yeah. For some reason, you know, despite being a total softy, one of my patron deities is Odin. Mm -hmm. um, and his name, like the root of his name, actually means like ecstasy or frenzy or madness. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, which, you know, can refer to like Odin is really connected to the arts and to poetry and, and inspiration. But also, you know, he's a warrior god and um, the the frenzied emotions of battle are also his. So that sort of ecstasy could refer to artistic inspiration or it could refer to, you know, going absolutely berserk on the battlefield. Um, yeah. But it's interesting that like it is a kind of ecstasy. And I think that is when Mars feels good, it's that sort of ecstasy that takes you outside of yourself um, because you're just doing something so intensely. Yeah. And potentially dangerous. <laughs> yeah. I think it's the unrestricted like intensity of Mars that that's where you get. Actually, it's like what when I hear the word exaltation, I think of like uh I have like, you know, I have Mars and Aquarius uh square and a bunch of Taurus planets. So, you know, obviously I I have a very specific type of metal that I like that only comes from Finland and uh, it's you know, it's it's very refined Taurian um specificity 
or Aquarius, you know, nobody else can like it but me. Um, <laughs> but uh, it gets you in this particular mode where I just think of the word exaltation and it's like that it's the Mars. Uh, I don't have an exalted Mars, but uh, it feels exalted when when you get that right. You know, you get that double bass drum going and some fucking killer, classically inspired riffs. Anyway. <laughs> happy Mars and Scorpio, everyone. We have a, yeah, happy Mars and Scorpio, <laughs> everyone. I think we have a show to do today or? Uh, <laughs> sort of on on the subject of Mars, um, <laughs> we we have a question that has to do with Pluto, who has stolen a bunch of Mars's significations, really. Pluto's mm-hmm. become, you know, interpreted as the higher octave of Mars, like Mars dialed up to 11, as if you need to dial Mars up anymore. <laughs> Apparently we're like, no, the Mars setting in astrology didn't go high enough. Yeah. So we're going to crank it up a little bit more and we're going to introduce Pluto. <laughs> yeah. Or, you know, it, I mean, that's Pluto is like, it's either all the way up to 11 or 20 or like negative five. Yeah, it's just, it's not there. Like, where'd Pluto go? It's all or nothing. So uh, our first listener question today uh, comes from Haley, and they want to know, why Pluto? Why use Pluto in astrology (laughs) at all? Why? Um, You know, it's it's, uh, astronomically speaking, no longer a planet. You know, it's it's a little dwarf planet. Um, It was only very, very recently discovered. You know, it's not part of the, the long and enduring tradition of astrology. It was discovered in 1930 so it's you know less less than 100 years it's been in the astrology game so why use it kyle yeah what what does pluto what does pluto have to to give to the tradition of astrology well first of all i i do have uh answers you know because i'm an expert right but i (laughs) so i eat pluto for breakfast lunch and dinner every day but i wanted to share in that questioning state for a second because seriously why because, uh, you know, you have planets like Pluto that were discovered before Pluto. But Pluto, as we, you know, we did discuss this in the uh, the Asteroids episode that Ceres was discovered and was considered a planet long before Pluto. Mm-hmm. And yet, uh, once we found Pluto, we just sunk our teeth into it and just incorporated it into astrology immediately. It's a very good question. And... I am excited to dive into it. I think maybe one of the things that Pluto had, something that was advantageous to Pluto in terms of being very quickly incorporated into astrology and um, in a really enduring way is just the timing of its discovery. Because in 1930 was the, the time that sun sign astrology was born as well, like the 1930s, not yeah. the year 1930s specifically, but it was in the 1930s um, that sun sign horoscopes started appearing in English newspapers. And, you know, astrology had been through a bit of a low point through the 18th, 19th centuries, you mm-hmm. know, the, and then in the early 1900s, you had um, Alan Leo, who you know, started popularizing astrology a little bit more and kind of rethinking astrology for a new era and making it a little bit more accessible because at the time that he was working in the early 1900s, um, fortune telling was illegal in in Britain. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So he kind of adapted it, you know, where astrology wasn't just about fortune telling and made it so that, you know, there was sort of a way, like there was kind of a loophole 
there was there was a way of getting around it by making astrology um, more about these sort of like esoteric or metaphysical subjects and less about, you know, trying to deterministically decide what was going to happen in someone's future. Um, And then in, in the 1930s, you know, you had the rise of astrologers like Evangeline Adams, who really popularized astrology and like magazines and um, newspapers and in pop culture again. So it was kind of like a ripe time for Pluto to come on the scene. Yeah. I find when it comes to timing, I'm glad you brought up timing because the world was in a very interesting place at, at that time. And I kind of want to read just a little excerpt from uh, the first kind of major publication about Pluto um, from Fritz Fritz Brunhuber, Hubner. Fritz yeah, Brunhuber. I'm going to struggle to pronounce his name. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I like Brun Hubner. Is it's a pretty pretty cool name, but um, this is uh, he wrote in 1930. Uh, literally, was it 1929 or 1930 that Pluto was discovered? So this, I think it was discovered in 1930. Um, although I don't know, it's entirely clear because um, I think like the announcement was postponed because somebody involved in the discovery had a birthday or something. I don't know. Um, I don't remember the whole story, but I think. Fritz Brunhubner published his book on Pluto in 1934. Hmm, this one, uh... So it's a few years yeah, after Pluto's going, discovery. Yeah. This one is... It's like 1933 is... or 1934. Alright, so I mean, the ex- excerpt that I want to read comes from Pluto, New Horizons for a Lost Horizon, Astronomy, Astrology, and Mythology... Uh, which is a collection of, of different essays from different astrologers at different times uh, about Pluto and its significations. And at least in this book, it says that um, this excerpt from Fritz Brunhubner <laughs> is, uh, is a reprint of material from 1930. It's kind of just an example of an, the early take on Pluto, which I guess, uh, you know, whether it was 1930 or, or later, uh, I guess I just find it interesting that, like, right out of the gate, uh, astrologers were trying to put Pluto into an astrological context. And Fritz Brunhubner wrote, uh, Pluto is connection, transition, passage, bridge, boundary, the end, and at the same time, the beginning. It unbinds and binds. It brings revolutionary upheavals. It is the turning point. Pluto leads from torpidity to revival. From one condition of consciousness into another. From one being into another being. From this life into the life hereafter. For this reason, Pluto has been called in mythology the lord of the realm of the dead. The realm between the astral world. Pluto is the overthrow of the old, sensing the new. The end of the old world and the ascent of a new spiritual epoch. It is therefore not a mere chance that Pluto was discovered on the borderline of two ages, the turning point of human evolution. If Uranus is the first stage of the coming Aquarian age, then Pluto is the second stage. Pluto leads out of death, rigidity, a cramped state, through the stage of fermentation, preparation, and development to revival, enlightenment, elevation, and clarification. Pluto will lead humanity out of the mechanization and mechanical technology of our times into an epoch of revivication, <laughs> resurrection of magic and creative power. 
So I find this excerpt interesting, and it becomes pretty clear uh, reading it that, I mean, he's pulling all of this from the mythology behind Pluto. But when you consider the time period uh, around 1930, building up to that, 1920s even, we're really talking about the post-World War I world, the interwar period between World War I and World War II. And this was really a period where collectively as like humans, we we're kind of recovering from this huge trauma that World War I represented. It was the first really encounter with modern warfare, mechanized warfare, impersonal warfare where, you know, people uh, were living in, in trenches and it was like a truly mechanical experience of just, you know, it wasn't about strategy or about, um, you know, one person winning out over the other one or, or anything. It was just uh, who could pump the most human bodies into a space with the most firepower at the right time. And it was an extremely dehumanizing experience for people. I mean, really, it was pretty messed up and people were really kind of losing faith in not only like government institutions and kind of the sort of values that like patriotism that people used to sort of cling to when fighting wars and, and joining up for the military. But really, it was kind of the first experience of like how uh, apocalyptic technology can be like the, the realization that, you know, we have the ability to destroy ourselves and each other on a scale like never before. And, you know, you have Uranus, he's kind of referencing how Uranus, uh, this whole idea of, of an Aquarian age. And uh, we had kind of like a fetishizing of technology for um, some time before World War One, and kind of post-World War One, a lot of people were like, I don't know if I like this, you know? Was it the, who wrote Lord of the Rings? Uh, J.R.R. Tolkien? Yep. That those ideas are all throughout Lord of the Rings of like mechanized, impersonal beings like the the orcs, you know, is kind of a, a representation of like the dehumanizing quality of industrial society. And, you know, then you have like the elves and like the simple hobbits, you know, the country folk who are the good peer people. They're they're fighting against this industrial oppression. And you kind of see how like uh this guy, Runhuber really jumps on, you know, oh, now we have this symbol of this way that we feel about maybe the, the revolution mm -hmm. of Uranus and now uh, like, oh, Pluto's here to liberate us from um, the evil, evil technology that is really enslaving people or humanizing people. And I think that you do get a lot of the significations of Pluto really being pulled out of that idea, um, out of this experience that was very new for people around this time. That was long. No, that was incredible. I, yeah, that you completely nailed it, I think. And uh, I'm sold on Pluto now because of you. <laughs> well, this is all like pre-nuclear uh, too. Yeah, it was. Um, um, so yeah, in 1942, nuclear fusion was achieved. So Pluto kind of heralded this new, and that's, you know, something that, you know, folks listening who are already quite familiar with astrology will probably be familiar with that because astrologers do bring it up a lot. And it is one of the the ways that um, we derive meaning for the newly discovered uh, celestial bodies is by looking at, well, what was going on in history at the time of their discovery and what was going on in history shortly after they were discovered, like that discovery sort of herald um, 
a new era for humanity. And in the case of Pluto, you know, nuclear power was developed shortly after Pluto's discovery. So that was kind of one of the big new things that we were grappling with Mm -hmm. that Pluto became symbolic of. And also, I think that's where you get some of Pluto's symbolism of representing very tiny things because of the the atomic symbolism, oh, yeah. yeah, the unseen. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not only the underworld, but also things that are very, very, very minuscule. Well, and yeah, and uh, I guess you know, keeping it to the the question of like why, like um, these were like really intense feelings. I think for for people, like you know, we're all kind of used to like consumerism and how kind of dehumanizing it can be to be sort of reduced to the um, label of consumer. Uh, we're kind of used to finding our, ourselves and our identity in that context. But like that sort of industrial language, which people have been struggling with for a long time, I think, during the Industrial Revolution, but seeing how nasty it could get, there is like a lot of language about, and it's where you start to get like that transformation, you know, or transmutation. Um, and even now, still, it's kind of idea of, well, he wouldn't have used it at the time, like mutation, like, you know, this idea of evolving into like a super person sort of transcend uh, the like the shackles of really sort of distorted power mechanisms that industrialization facilitated. And it gets kind of hard and you can see how it's like sort of early uh, that like there's a lot of Uranus language, like a revolution. Mm hmm. But maybe it's like there's sort of like a disenchantment with with Uranus almost at the time. Well, just thinking about in terms of why use the newly discovered planets, I think, you know, what you've been talking about um, is a really good case where uh, for thousands of years, we couldn't see any planets past Saturn. And then scientific technology advanced to the point where we were no longer limited by our senses mm-hmm. and Uranus, Neptune, and Pluto, um, I think all share some similar significations because they all represent um, that experience of, for the first time in human history, no longer being limited by our senses mm-hmm. and being able to perceive a world very much outside of the normal. And that is, you know, in my own practice, how I use those planets in interpretation is that these are, these are super normal experiences. Um, These are confrontations with things that are outside of um, the usual limits of perception and understanding and the like speed of technological advancement. We almost can't keep up with it. And I do feel like, you know, planets like Pluto. Yeah. That, you know, in our like, stuff like the matrix and you know all of our like stories that we tell in popular culture about like robot apocalypses and stuff like that where we're sort of we're afraid of our own power Mm -hmm. um our own technological power i feel like a lot of that um experience coincides with the discovery of pluto and it's being incorporated into natal astrology and that is that is a use for it is sort of capturing that feeling and capturing its time like capturing this time period um, within a chart and how we grapple with those issues that are unique to our time in history. Yeah. I think uh, Kenneth Miller made this really good point about the outer planets and like when they were being incorporated into astrology and this whole idea uh, at the time of uh, what he would refer to as like spiritual Darwinism. Yeah. Um, this whole idea of, you know, the 
outer planets and, you know, even assigning them uh, signs to rule, uh, which really is, I mean, maybe the, the most simple answer <laughs> to, to the question is why, why Pluto? It's because, because Uranus and Neptune, because uh, even though yeah. through the debate, they ended up messing up their whole kind of reason for it. But they had this idea that like, oh, you know, we have these new planets that have been made possible by us sort of transcending the traditional limits of, of human capacity. Like now we don't need to, we have technology. We've evolved beyond our human limits of our, of our eyeballs, and we, we can see things far, far out into space. And we should uh, have the, these outer planets are kind of like an expression of our, our spiritual evolution as well. And by assigning them, um, you know, they had this idea that they're going to find 12 planets over time and assign them all to so that each planet would have their own sign, right? Mm-hmm. Um, which they never got to 12, but... Yeah, I don't know. So you get this like, uh, you know, you refer to this Aquarian age. And I actually don't know when the age of Aquarius idea started. Do you have any idea? Yeah, I, I don't know when it became. I mean, we've known about the procession of the equinoxes, which is the concept that the age of Aquarius is based on for a very long time. Like for a couple thousand yeah. years, we've known about this. But using the procession of the equinoxes to interpret ages uh, of the mm-hmm. world. I don't know when that concept was first introduced. I think the idea of like the, yeah. or even just when the, like the hopefulness. Yeah. Of- I think the sort of hopeful Aquarian age concept is very recent. Yeah. I think that's a modern concept, but um, I think the idea of there being ages that are based on the procession of the equinoxes is probably an older idea. Yeah. That, you know, the age of Aquarius has been, um, interpreted in a very positive light as a result of like the new age movement and, um, that kind of stuff. Yeah. So I don't know. There, there's kind of like a, cause it's taking place over, I mean, Uranus was discovered. I don't know when they started giving Uranus astrological significations. I think we went over this before. It was like 1850 or something. So there's a really, really good article on Skyscript, which I will include in the show notes Mm -hmm. uh, titled when and why did Uranus become associated with Aquarius? Yeah. Um, But you know, it's not only an attempt to answer that question, but in attempting to answer that question, uh, the author goes over a lot of the earliest um, instances of astrologers using Uranus in astrology and how they incorporated it and how they interpreted its symbolism. Yeah. Uh, and there's even like a little bit of a timeline. What's interesting is Uranus was discovered during kind of a low point in astrology. Um, so it took quite a long time, I think, for it to become really solidly uh, incorporated in the tradition the way it is nowadays. But yeah. like pretty much right away, like in 1791, there was this obscure esoteric magazine called Conjurer's Magazine yeah. that um, made a connection between Uranus, which at the time was called Herschel. Yeah. <laughs> being in leo and fires so there's like yeah. a signification there where you know if uranus is in leo there are fires so um there people were talking about it and writing about it pretty much right away but it i think took a while before it became um a staple of the astrological tradition yeah it's almost like we started giving signs away to these new planets oh we have a new one let's give it to a sign like quickly and Aries, that seems like it was kind of in the run. I mean, it was Aries, Scorpio. That debate went on for a long time. I don't think it was 
kind of accepted more universally in the astrological community that Pluto ruled Scorpio uh, until like 1960s or so. And I think the 60s was really when the outer planets hit their stride. Yeah. That sort yeah. of counterculture movement that astrology got swept up in. And I think that's when astrology started to become really popular and, and become the phenomenon we know it to be today, because it went through a period between the Renaissance and now it went through sort of a a low point where it wasn't very popular. Um, and, it, you know, in a lot of cases, it was even illegal to practice. Mm -hmm. um, and then in the 60s, you had that counterculture movement with a lot of alternative spirituality becoming... Uh, a little more mainstream. And that's when, you know, astrology, modern astrology, I think really became what it is today. Yeah. And the outer planets were really, really central Yeah, um, to a lot of the writing in the 60s and 70s. Yeah. And I mean, it, it, I don't know, it intuitively makes a lot of sense to me. I really was like interested in the outer planets, um, like first getting into astrology, like sort of like kind of the most interesting or in a lot of ways, like the most relevant to not so much personally, but like the focuses of our, of our time, you know, I don't know, like you can kind of get like just listening to the language of, uh, of Brune Huber, um, is, you know, you, you can kind of taste the sort of great white hope of Uranus and, and the, the new ruler of Aquarius and like this, um, transcending power that technology brings, you know, like we can build a whole new world with the power of technology and then just the other utter devastation of World War One and post-World War One, where like, you know, people you see on the street, they're people who their faces have been blown off or are missing limbs. Um, and just the kind of the utter disenchantment with that uh, experience and like not even knowing what to do with it because uh, it really, people didn't know what to believe in anymore because what had their beliefs gotten them, gotten them, you know, the most horrific experience that probably still to this day, <laughs> um, any mass of people uh, have ever lived. Uh, I would say that trench warfare, when you really like get into the the grit of it, is is really like a hellish nightmare. And uh, I think that like part of the reason that we scooped up Pluto so so fast was like, okay, here's a thing to project that on. Here's a thing that that tells us that mm -hmm. story. And yeah. we still use it for that. It may not be as directly tied to technology as much, but I mean, we end up using it for what, like, you know, power dynamics, you know, corruption, right? The corruption of the abuses of power. Conflict on a mass scale. Yeah. And like really, while I don't, you know, in practice really find that it shows up <laughs> <laughs> with, with Pluto, but we use it to tell the story of like really horrific and traumatic stuff you know we saved the worst for pluto right or at least probably from like the 70s up until now and probably still to some degree now i don't know maybe being caught up in like the traditional revival uh to some degree I sort of like lost my perspective on like pluto doesn't scare me the way it did before i, I don't know did uh you don't have like super hard pluto aspects do no you? no but i was uh i was i was just thinking about when you were reading uh fritz's description of Pluto, the whole time I was thinking that's Saturn. For 2,000 years, that was Saturn. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting, because, you know, all those words like boundaries and endings and um, the boundary between this world and the afterlife or the other world, that was Saturn's domain. 
mm-hmm. um, for you know the entirety of the Western uh, tradition of astrology. And where I think Saturn and Pluto are really similar is that they do represent boundaries. At least like for you and I, we grew up with Pluto being a planet. Pluto was the outermost planet in the solar system. You know, I, I grew up in the 90s, mm-hmm. so the, the, it had not been demoted yet. I was, you know, if you've ever seen the magic school bus, you would know, you would know that Pluto was a planet. planet. That's what I was taught. And it was at the outermost reaches of the solar system. And it is also just like, it's tiny and icy. Um, It really like when you, you know, you look at like artists renditions of it, it really gives you that feeling of like, there is no going past this. And, you know, that was the sort of feeling that, that Saturn is meant to evoke. Um, And Mm -hmm. I think, what ends up happening is that like with technological advancement, we were able to actually see past the boundary that Saturn represented, but our technological advancement does not make us gods. It is also limited. And so Pluto kind of represents the limits of the advancements we've made. It's sort of like the new limit and the new consequences. It carries a little bit of that, that Saturn responsibility you know, where we've advanced to a point where, you know, we could wipe out entire countries with the flick of a switch. Yeah. And, you know, the, the great world wars that happened um, around the time Pluto was discovered were like, you know, this is, this is the cost. This is the potential cost Mm -hmm. of what we're capable of doing. Yeah. You know, our, our greed and our, you know, conflict with each other limits our ability to use this stuff for the good. And when we try to use it, our own, the corruption in our own nature potentially has these consequences. Yeah. So it's, it's serving, it's serving a similar role to Saturn, but sort of like for a new era with, with new problems that ancient people didn't have to deal with. Yeah. And I I mean, that's, that's like where I think that I find, um, Pluto actually kind of shows up. Granted, you know, having traumatic experiences will maybe tune you to um, that sort of, uh, you know, peering down the the abyss of human nature. But we're also just kind of exposed to those ideas more, I think, <laughs> in, mm-hmm. in general. You know, they're in movies, they're in, in books. Uh, you don't have to like live horror to, to know the horror that we're capable of. Um, you get like Pluto's extremes, right? Like the with great power comes great responsibility. You know, you can, we could build a, a utopia or we can create, you know, an apocalyptic wasteland. And, uh, but that like thinking and that, um, sort of peering into, uh, the, the void of, of, <laughs> of the chasm of human nature, it's, it's like a rabbit hole, you know, uh, there's no bottom to it. The deeper you go, the more you kind of come out the other side. Where, you know, the more extremely negative and dark you get, like you kind of can find utopia on the other end. <laughs> it's very, uh, I don't want to say nebulous because that's very Neptune. But Pluto, like, I don't know, there is there, there's a, a way that Pluto will make you kind of run in circles a little bit. Or, you know, you're just kind of like looking for, uh, you know, the end of the mystery, that, but it never comes. <laughs> mm-hmm. This actually, now I'm feeling excited because I remember a conversation that, that we had a while back about, um, about like H.P. Lovecraft. Uh, Pluto was discovered around the time that H.P. Lovecraft was, was writing um, a lot of his stories. 
and H.P. Lovecraft. Uh, I think it's called like the godfather of horror now. Um, he's a very like niche author until maybe recently, but his whole shtick was uh, this idea of like cosmic horror. It wasn't really so much about like big monsters or big scares, but it was about like the the horror of the idea of like an indifferent universe or something just so alien that um, that like from its perspective, because he had these like gods. It's like monster gods or whatever uh, space entities um, that like weren't evil per se, but like just to, to them, humans were ants. Humans were were nothing. And, you know, they could like squash a whole planet of human beings and it would be nothing to them. And just that idea uh, really like I mean, he really like would dive into like those themes and that idea of just how terrifying that is, you know of the ununderstandable, of the the unimaginable, you know, what lies outside of what's even possible for humans to experience. Uh, it's a really great story called The Color Out of Space, which That's the whole story is about... That's one of my about, favorite stories. Yeah, I love that story. And it's, just, it's, it's so good. A color, I mean, they're trying to describe a color that, like, your eyes, that we can't even comprehend, you know? It's just, a, it's a color, and it's, like, not anything. It just make, makes you fucking crazy. Freaking crazy to... Uh, <laughs> to to look upon it i think it was also like poisoning people and stuff too yeah it was it was killing people yeah but like for you know the the mechanism by which it is causing death is unknown and undiscoverable to us it's so beyond anything we can comprehend or even the motivation for it or the yeah reason or meaning it's just yeah yeah well there's a nihilism to it right it's like that horrifying nihilism that like we live in an indifferent universe that is populated with like godlike beings and there is absolutely no basis whatsoever for yeah. a relationship that's yeah, not possible for us and them to understand each other there's no basis for communication um so it you know whereas like in most ideas of like deities or supernatural beings there's a mode of communication by which we can kind of come to terms with each other you know we may not ever mm-hmm. fully comprehend each other's experience or being but we can at least communicate with the lovecraftian universe like there is nothing yeah if you even try to reach out and communicate with these beings it will just like suck your brain out through your eyes yeah <laughs> which to me is like that's that's the outer planets is that's the world you're entering mm-hmm. when you enter that realm when you cross over saturn's boundary you're entering into that realm and then pluto is the boundary of that realm yeah 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 it's like it's not it's not god you know it's not even the devil it's not you know you can't it's pray. not good or evil like there's no basis for morality even like yeah it's... you can't pray to it you can't make a deal with yeah. it it's just it's utterly indifferent and that that's terrifying and that's to me that's like what pluto is about it's those those themes and you know people can feel like that in society i think that's a problem of you know every society has always had its problems um but there's, I think, a industrialization sort of brings that. Consumerism sort of brings that um, up where, you know, your value to the community is not about you as a person. Uh, it's about you as a consumer. You know, what products do you generate and what products do you consume? How do you contribute to the economy? Um, that That's who you are. And that, for some people, is probably fine. I don't know. If you get caught up in it, you can lose yourself in it. But it can also be extremely... Um, dehumanizing and uh, not it doesn't really feed you 
I don't know. There's something um, hungry about Pluto, but it's like insatiable. And I guess that's another aside that I understand arguments for like why some astrologers don't even recognize the outer planets doing anything because you can pull um, a lot of the significations from other traditional bodies or points Mm -hmm. like the there's like something kind of north nodey north node about about pluto but also south node you know um and something kind of saturn something kind of mars and something there's even you know people talk about like a you know weird link with venus and you know pluto has a heart you know obsession and desire and uh i think it there there's something that pluto distorts things to some degree or exaggerates but yeah, I don't know. I, I think that uh, on a basic level, like we needed, yeah, we need, I think Pluto should have been just the right time for us to, you know, use that. We, we need to talk about that. Yeah, you know, it's sort of an indication of a conversation that we culturally really needed to have. Yeah, it's something we don't really, I mean, have a lot of language for, I think, either. Like, why are people killing themselves? Yeah. Why are people shooting up schools? Like, we don't really have language to talk about we're still figuring out language to talk about like the uh, the sort of like uh, existential void (laughs) that is sort of uh, being created by um this rapid evolution uh socially that we're going through like human beings um 200 years ago our life expectancies were like 40 years old i don't know (laughs) we were most of us were still farming um you know, most of us still only really saw a couple hundred people uh, throughout most of our lives. Um, we haven't caught up to where we are now. No, uh, we, we're we're figuring it out. And I, you know, I I have Pluto opposing my son and Jupiter, so I've yeah, very beat up Sun and Jupiter. But it's still, you know, it's still there. It's still like I have I have this like great hope for people. But I also see how how easily we um, can mess that up, and I think that that's kind of what um, what we're talking about when we're talking about Pluto. We're talking about the outer planets is, is these like huge, grand themes that go beyond you know your own experience. Yeah, they go because Jupiter and Saturn um, represent society, and you know, they represent mm-hmm. um, things on a grander scale, and you know, like you were saying fairly recently in human history, you know, people only knew maybe, you know, a small group of people, um, you know, we didn't have the kind of global awareness that we have nowadays. And I think that's one of the the uses of the outer planets in astrology is um, they're very symbolic of globally, of global concerns, of things that are concerned on a global scale and of our awareness yeah. of being part of a global community, not just, not just part of, you know, a society or even part of a a single country, but being, you know, connected to the rest of the world. And Pluto in particular is really good for tracking generations. And like, I don't think we've really been tracking generations for that long. Like the, the popular idea of like millennials and baby boomers and whatever, I feel like whenever I look at, um, look up generations. I feel like it starts at the silent generation, maybe. Like yeah. I think it kind of our our idea of sort of categorizing ourselves collectively into these chunks of time um on a very like global scale. Um 
is pretty recent and also coincides with the discovery of Pluto. This is something Mm -hmm. I want to look into now is what is the history of us tracking these generations? Because I feel like no, you're you're right on it like that. Yeah, the silent generation begins in 1928, literally a couple of years before Pluto is discovered. So it's like Pluto's, you know, when when we're starting to to track these generations, you know, in in Western society, um, Pluto comes onto the scene. And then like weirdly, every time Pluto changes sign, it actually lines up pretty well with the generations as they're popularly defined. Like mm-hmm. Pluto's in Scorpio mostly for the millennial generation and Pluto is in Leo mostly for the boomer generation. And so it becomes this really good symbol of these sort of more like large scale um, collective issues and also larger scales of time. Oh yeah. You know, or like Saturn, Saturn is dealing with, you know, like you have your Saturn return every like 27 and a half years or so. Um, You'll never have a Pluto return. Yeah, oh yeah. It, the the yeah. scale of time is so much larger. So we're like Saturn was our cosmic timekeeper. Now that we aren't just thinking about individual lives or the lives of the small community, we're thinking about, you know, the like spans of generations. We need a a timekeeper that can keep track of longer periods of time. And Pluto yeah. becomes really useful for that. So, I mean, that's the other function that I use it for in astrology. I don't use it so much um, to talk about, you know, events that happen in somebody's life or their personality or whatever, but more about like, how do you feel about being part of your generation? Like, how do you relate Mm -hmm. to the idea of being a part of a generation and of the generation you're a part of, you know, what, what is your experience of being a millennial or being a boomer? Um, And you know, if Pluto is really prominent in your chart, um, that might say something about, you know, how you represent the sort of issues of your time that are really relevant yeah. to your time. You know, like you can, there are lots of examples of people with Pluto prominent in their chart who are kind of like the poster children of their generation, you know, like Elton John was one for for the boomer generation with Pluto and Leo really prominent in his chart where he's just like, he really represents a sort of cultural moment for his generation. And um, Copernicus was another one, I believe, who had Pluto uh, in his first house, mm-hmm. sort of, you know, like a huge figure in the scientific revolution. And, and so like, you know, people who represent these, like cultural or generational changes having outer planets really prominent in their chart. They're very, very impersonal. Yeah. When it's, yeah, they sort of sweep you up a little bit, but you I mean, they also, I, I think, well, you made like an excellent point that I want to, um, I'm like chomping at the bit. I'm excited about this conversation a little bit. Uh, <laughs> uh, you made a really good point about, um, how the discovery of these planets tie in, uh, how we, we need these kind of new timekeepers to track these sort of generational shifts in, in uh, differences because I don't you didn't really get um, historically so much of a uh, there's almost like a, a generational rivalry uh, to some degree or like a, you know oh it's the it's the fucking boomers' fault right you know those boomers hadn't screwed us over you know we would uh, have jobs right now that allowed us to pay a mortgage or, or something like that you know that, that those are i just want to say adversarial to some degree but 
uh, historically in traditional astrology, you know, what were the big cycles that you had to track? You had um, really had the Jupiter Saturn cycle, which uh, actually can be stretched out to two hundred years because we just entered yeah. the the uh, a shift into air. You know, where the Jupiter Saturn conjunctions are all going to be taking place in air for the next two hundred years or so, and that shift happens about pretty consistently every 200 years. But the sort of main sub-cycle of that is, you know, whenever Jupiter and Saturn have a conjunction, um, you know, their opposition. But it was sort of part of this ongoing continuous cycle um, that was pretty stable historically. You know, our progress technologically, socially, um, had ups and downs, but we were talking about longer stretches of time, like where it's happening slowly. If you're living in 1500, maybe a little bit in 1500, we'll say 1400, I don't know, you're not going to like feel super alienated from the people two or three generations ahead of you. You know, like you're going to, you're going to listen to your elders because they did the same stuff that you are doing. But now um, it's happening faster and faster. The people that are um, in their 70s now, they're like, they don't even, they don't understand people who are 20. Shit, I don't. I don't understand people <laughs> to some degree. They're twenty a little bit. I know that yeah, I'm, the gap has grown because yeah. things change so oh, yeah. much more rapidly. Where you have potentially a lot more in common with your elders in a previous era, but mm-hmm. now things change so rapidly that like it it splits our generations. The generation gaps are getting shorter. Even more, where yeah, it's like my my experience is so much more different from somebody twenty years older or younger than me. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's just getting more and more intense. Yeah. I, I know I'm pretty much accepted. I'm never going to catch up with technology <laughs> and the, you know, um, already my son is seven and, um, he like just, his brain is like wired to technology. He knows how to like, it just makes sense to him in ways that it never mm-hmm. will for me. Because while, uh, I would say that I better, um, what would you call it? Like your, your early experiences of technology existed. Like, you know, we had VCRs, right? You had a VCR when you were a kid. Oh yeah. You had a phone with a cord on it. Um, it's the best part of rewatching the X-Files is the nostalgia for all the technology I grew up with. Yeah. You know, every, every time I see one of those phones, it just brings me such joy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like I had that phone. Yeah. Well, it, I don't know, the technology that we grew up kind of with in our everyday lives was not crazy different from our parents, you know? It was different. Yeah. It was new, but yeah. we were sort of like um, experiencing this new technology together. Uh, yeah. So it, it wasn't like so dramatic as it might be like now where, you know, uh, social media like was getting sort of popular when I was in high school. But now it's like it's part of your your childhood. Like it's it's yeah. Uh, your experience of childhood is inherently tied to the internet. And we were in the that sort of very early internet um, period. So like on some level, um, kind of relate to that. Anyway, total aside, um, you know, we don't really, you know, the traditional planets don't really have the same kind of mechanism for tracking that sort of wide disparity that really kind of started around around the discovery of the outer planets where you started to get like technology really shifting enough in the span of a lifetime um, where life is very much different from the people, you know, if you're, if you're 80, you know, the kids growing up in, uh, if you were born in night, this is way long winded. <laughs> if you were born in 1850, 
uh, you know, you grew up with like muskets and stuff um, around and that level of technology. And then, you know, if you're 80 in 1930, uh, you know, the kids growing up are in just a totally different world than the one you lived in. That really didn't happen before. We, we don't really, you know, live in Not totally to different extent. worlds in a lifetime. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, there is a time when, you know, you could look at a child and their childhood would not look all that different from mm -hmm. your own childhood, even though you're much older. And now you look at a child and you're like, e you are from a different planet. Yeah. Uh, my childhood resembled yours in that, like, no way whatsoever, you yeah. know? Um, I made I made a mistake. It was the lost generation. That is where oh, yeah, the, lost the, named, the named generations of the Western world begin with the lost generation. Um, which was from 1883 to 1900. And those were the folks who um, became adults during World War One. Yeah. So sort of like that was the when you're sort of tracking like the, the history of the modern Western world, um, I feel like Pluto's kind of got its hand all over it. Yeah, that I guess maybe maybe that's why I'm so fascinated with I've always been fascinated with World War One in, in particular, because it is this like really apocalyptic moment. Um, well, it started when Pluto was in Cancer, mm -hmm. I believe, and Pluto was discovered in Cancer. Yeah. It was still in Cancer when it was discovered, so it was sort of like the aftermath of Pluto's ingress into Cancer is when it was discovered. Yeah. Well, that's something I want to... When it eventually comes out, the episode of, uh, <laughs> of Killer Cosmos, where, uh, which is turning into... It's how I, you know, it's how I know that Pluto's real. <laughs> It's a real object, but I think it does something is, uh, you know, I have this idea for a project and I'm like, oh yeah, let's do it about this. And then it turns into, uh, I go down 20 different rabbit holes and it turns into something way bigger than uh, I had originally intended or, or, you know, or I want to just, I'm like, uh, this is too much. Screw it. And I have Pluto pretty, like I said, a lot of uh, aspects to stuff, but I, I lost my point. Um, one last, one last thing I want to touch on, um, maybe before we move on to yeah. the next question, um, because, you know, Haley was asking about Pluto also in the context of, you know, it, it being a dwarf planet. And now we know, you know, there are other dwarf planets, um, because the, the categories, the scientific definitions have changed. Um, yeah. so, you know, if, if Pluto is still considered a planet in astrology, there is that question of, well, what about all the other dwarf planets which is a very good question and definitely a rabbit hole we don't need to go down right now necessarily but are you sure just to just to touch are on you it sure a you little bit yeah. i mean i want to but um <laughs> yeah the sake of our listeners we should probably not record a four-hour podcast <laughs> oh yeah yeah but uh one thing i think is important to note is that the astronomical definition of a planet is not necessarily the astrological definition of a planet. Mm -hmm. In in astrology, a planet is just a wandering star. It's just an object that moves across the background of the fixed stars. It moves through the ecliptic. So, you know, the sun and the moon in astrology are planets. They're not astronomically planets by any means. Um, the moon is a moon and the sun is a star. But in astrology, we refer to them as planets because it's just the wandering celestial shiny things mm -hmm. um, as opposed to the fixed celestial shiny things. And, you know, Pluto fits that astrological definition. Um, and I think, you know, astrology is not a 
like scientific phenomenon, it's a cultural phenomenon. Pluto meant something culturally when it was discovered. And, you know, astrologers whose job it is to look at the sky and, you know, figure out what it symbolizes um, when a discovery is made immediately go, well, what does it mean? Um, And, you know, Pluto has not only played a role in our culture through astrology, but just like, you know, when I, like we were talking about the magic school bus, if you learned about the solar system, watching the magic Mm -hmm. school bus in the nineties, you learned that Pluto was a planet and that it was named after the God of the underworld and that it was far away and spooky and cold and small. And so, you know, you have all of these like subjective feelings and experiences that you tie. And when you had that creepy moment where, um, what was his name? Tell me his name. Tell me his name. What was his name? Like, I knew we shouldn't go on a field Was trip. Was it Arnold? Arnold. Yeah, I think. That moment when Arnold takes his helmet off because everybody's arguing and he oh my raises God, his I'll head. I'll never forget that moment. It was terrifying for that Magic School Bus. traumatized And it was Pluto as hell. It's burned into my brain. Yeah. <laughs> like that, that's a cultural moment, yes. right? Like, that's our cultural impression of Pluto. That was a Pluto and, and Scorpio means. experience. That was truly, as a member of the Pluto and Scorpio generation, that was a Pluto and Scorpio experience. And that, so like, whether or not Pluto is demoted by astronomers doesn't necessarily change what it means to us culturally. And since astrology is about what things mean to us culturally, doesn't necessarily change its role in astrology any. It can still carry on as it has carried on since it was first, you know, interpreted by astrologers in 1930. Yeah. I guess my going um, theory for why astrology works in general and, and maybe why Pluto ends up working, um, aside from us just being crazy and, and just making it up because we <laughs> need to, but I, you know, we, maybe we just <laughs> we do we, need to. We threw enough thoughts at Pluto um, to give it um, meaning, you know. Yep. For the, to like be a holder of, of ideas and thoughts for us. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. And we didn't do that for other planets that maybe could have had the same potential, you know, I don't know. Yeah, for whatever reason. Um, and that's, I mean, that's something I'd like to do more research on to figure out, like, why didn't Ceres become, mm-hmm. you know, really important early in, in, you know, when it was discovered, why didn't astrologers jump on it? Um, maybe that's what Ceres means. Being overlooked, bad timing. <laughs> <laughs> Great planet to have on your midheaven. <laughs> And it's on my midheaven too. Being overlooked, great, um, and always doing things at the wrong time. And uh, you know, and then Pluto, you know, being. I mean, its demotion was also a cultural event, and there were actually people who protested it. Like yeah. I was looking up articles from I think it was like 2006 or whenever it was when the astronomical union made this decision and there were like literally people at universities carrying signs like size doesn't matter and <laughs> yeah. protesting pluto's demotion <laughs> so i want to see the chart a... for when it was de- demoted now i do too pluto. yeah that'll that'll be our our next task he's being overcome by saturn or something so now you know pluto also symbolizes starting out Starting out strong and then being pushed into the background. Yeah. <laughs> maybe we maybe we need to be careful about the things we think about the planets. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but yeah, I mean the, maybe the yeah, the momentum's too big now. I think the momentum is too big. I think it's too. I mean, it's really. My, I'm not an expert on evolutionary astrology, but my understanding is that Pluto is quite central to that tradition of astrology. So you know, you yeah. can't. Oh, yeah. 
you can't undo something that you know you've given meaning to. Pluto has too much meaning for us now. It's it's here to stay. It's with us. Um, yeah. And you know the other dwarf planets may yet you know become powerful symbols depending on how we relate to them. But we just yeah. haven't related to them to that level. At least not <laughs> yet. <laughs> Could still happen. Damn. This train of thought is really bumming me out about. Series. <laughs> I mean, I I think there's still lots. I just of, don't relate to you, series. I think there's just, lots mm, of not that potential you. for series. Yes, absolutely. Series is, uh, you know, series actually means um, huge success and um, love from everybody. Yeah, everybody wants to be your friend. And, yeah, um, just the right amount of people want to be your friend. Not too many. <laughs> just the right amount. Series is just everything just right. That's what series is. I like that. I like that a lot. I'll have I'll have that on my midheaven. I'm okay with that. Say it over and over and over again. Yes, Sirius Sirius is the new cool planet. It's the new edgy planet mm-hmm. that everyone cares about. Everyone asks, you know, when they call up their astrologer, they're like, "I want to know about Sirius in my chart. I want to know about Sirius in my partner's chart. Mm-hmm. I want to know about like other aspects between." So cool. <laughs> you know, it's it's going to be the new Pluto. Everyone asks about Pluto. Mm-hmm. Because it's mysterious. Give it like a cooler name. I know Pluto is such a good name. Is the other thing they really nailed it. I know Pluto like catches series. It's, yeah. it's too soft. Pluto's you know? Pluto's edgy. We really we like do. those extreme planets now. Eris. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's like all the all the stuff that people are interested in when they ask questions about astrology is like the darkest, heaviest <laughs> <laughs> celestial yeah. bodies you can. You know, people start like learning about the fixed stars and it's like we just fixate on Al Gol. It's like there's this star that represents yeah, like decapitation and demons. Yep. That's the one we want to ask about. <laughs> yeah. Which one is going to cut my head off and which one yeah. is going to make me fabulously rich and famous? Yeah, those are our two concerns. Mm-hmm. All right. All right. We should probably I think we answered. <laughs> hopefully. I mean, we started we don't answering have to. it. We could keep going. There are a lot there are lots of <laughs> yeah. reasons to use Pluto, but hopefully we've outlined a couple of reasons that Pluto is is useful and we should keep it. Yeah. Yes. All right. Um, want to start our next question? But I'm going to get everything ready so we can knock this puppy why we're gonna knock a puppy out we are going to slaughter this chart <laughs> gonna slaughter this puppy, <laughs> this puppy now. all the violent metaphors we are we are remediating right now oh yeah we are making mars happy I'm, right now i'm loving mars and scorpio i feel like i know I this is like the more best. energy like i yeah this episode of astrology hotline is brought to you by newsly if you're anything like me you like to stay informed on what's going on in the world in fact Paying attention to current events and watching how they correlate with transiting planets is a great way to learn astrology. But as you might know, it can be a bit of a struggle to find time to actually sit down and read all the latest articles. But not anymore, thanks to Newsly. Newsly is an audio app for iOS and Android that picks up web articles from the most trending topics on the web at any given moment and reads them to you in a natural human voice, liberating those busy thumbs and eyeballs of yours for, you know, that other stuff you gotta do. For the first time in the history of the internet, the web becomes listenable. So, say goodbye to copying articles and pasting them into Bonzi Buddy. Just browse Newsly for articles from topics of your choice and start playing. And that's not all. With Newsly, you can explore trending podcasts from over 40 countries. Now, I know you're probably asking, but Kyle, 
Does it have my favorite podcast, Astrology Hotline? You better believe it does. All you gotta do is download Newsly free from www.newsly.me. And to top it all off, you get a one month free premium subscription by using promo code ASTROLOGY2021. That's astrology with zeros instead of O's, 2021. Stop scrolling and start listening. Now, onto the show. Okay. All right. So, our second question comes from Jessica. So, Jessica asks, uh, became an engineer and have been working for a couple years, but this career field does not feel right for me at all. I'm doing a great job making lots of money, but unhappy. What does my chart say about this? Well, Jessica, um, very sorry to, to hear that. Um, that's a, a rough situation to find yourself in. I, I actually like I know a handful of people, a lot of engineers, it seems, uh, who kind of hate their jobs, but they, they love the money. And I guess the, the, the first thing that, you know, my eyes see looking at uh, Jessica's chart is um, Jessica has Capricorn rising 15 degrees or so and uh, Jupiter very close to the ascendant at about 10 degrees. Like Jupiter has like risen to like right above uh, the horizon, very prominent. I think maybe one one thing that might be good to mention um, mm. because Jessica sent us her chart in a Placidus system um, that oh, yeah. we're we're using whole signs. So Jessica, if you're really familiar with the Placidus house system, some of your house placements might be a bit different in our interpretation. Yeah, so yeah. bear with us. Yeah. And just to clarify, yeah. So are the charts that you might be used to seeing that house is sort of divided um, based on a different mechanism that we'll go into. But in, in whole sign houses, we just treat each sign of the zodiac as its own house. Um, so like Placidius, Jupiter would probably be considered in the 12th house because it is above the horizon and it's you know, on the, uh, the above the horizon side of the ascendant degree. Um, but we would just use the whole sign of Capricorn as your, your first house. So uh, a lot of different house systems. And as you learn more about astrology, I'm sure you'll settle on, on one that you like. But uh, hopefully we make a convert of you. <laughs> so we, we, uh, we prefer the, the whole sign house system, though other house systems have their virtues as well. Anywho... Yeah, we'll just give a, a brief rundown of Jessica's chart. Uh, so, like I said, Capricorn rising with Jupiter in the first at 10 degrees. Saturn in Aries in the fourth house, uh, ruling the first. Um, Venus in Venus and Mars in Gemini in the sixth house. And Sun and Mercury in the eighth house in Leo. And finally, the, the Moon in Scorpio in the eleventh house. We'll just save the outers. Speaking of the outers, you know, we spent an hour talking about how important they are, but I think for our purposes, um, we'll just maybe stick with those. And also, you know, as as always, for uh, listeners following along with our interpretations, Jessica's chart will be in the show notes if you want to look at a picture of it. Um, so you can follow along while you listen. It will be there for you. Yep. But yeah, uh, the, the first thing that popped out to me was the Jupiter in, in the first house in Capricorn. Um would you what what caught your eye Tristan that was the first thing for me too is Jupiter and Neptune in Capricorn in the first house um and you know kind of carrying over what we were saying about the outer planets um you know Neptune is one of the generational planets and I really like 
Austin Kopic's interpretation of how the outer planets relate to particular generations. And, you know, he looks at Neptune as being sort of like the dreams and, mm-hmm. and ideals and visions of that particular generation. And, you know, as, so as where a, we tend to be disillusioned as well. Yeah. As, uh, as a member, <laughs> as a member of the <laughs> Neptune and Capricorn cohort myself, um, mm-hmm. you know, I, I laugh when I see Neptune and Capricorn cause it's, it's an odd place for Neptune, um, for a, a dreamy planet, um, in, you know, a sign that's very much about survival and, uh, resourcefulness and practical concerns um and so i always think you know for for those of us who are part of the neptune and capricorn generation most of us are millennials um our sort of generational dream or vision is just like job security you know other other generations might yeah or mad max yeah or mad max yeah exactly like that's you know that's our vision of <laughs> of the world wasteland yeah <laughs> And that's, you know, that's right up in the, in the first house there. And, you know, Jupiter is also like, I mean, Jupiter and Neptune are both dreamers. Jupiter is about faith and optimism. Um, And so we have these like sort of dreamy planets, um, but in the sign of Capricorn, which is pragmatic and not really about dreaming big and, you know, Capricorn, it's like, it makes sense. Like the time of year, um, when the sun is in Capricorn in the Northern hemisphere, um, you know, corresponds with the beginning of winter and it's not the time for, for big idealistic, beautiful dreams. It's the time to like, okay, we need to really like buckle down, uh, gather our things and try not to die because winter is coming. Yeah. Right. So, you know, there is this like right in the first house, I can already see this kind of conflict between what makes sense for my survival versus like what are the sort of bigger dreams and visions that I might be a part of or that might actually make me happy. Um, and I think that's sort of a common experience for a lot of people in in our generation, those of us who have Neptune and Capricorn. Yeah, I, I would say that Jupiter and Capricorn is quite good at like you were saying, like uh, assessing and providing for the survival needs, you know, mm-hmm. security, um, long-term durable security, but not necessarily, you know, it can struggle a bit in figuring out how to meet its, uh, how to feed it, its soul. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really good at that in like Pisces. It's really good at that in, you know, Cancer and Sagittarius as well. But, you know, in Capricorn, it's, it's uh, it, that is maybe the big struggle, I would say, of Jupiter and Capricorn is... Mm-hmm. Um, figuring out what gives uh, life meaning or what, what do I need beyond, you know, just these material things that give me the security that I require. And is it possible? I mean, the thing about Jupiter. Yeah. Is it even possible? Yeah. Is it realistic? Yeah. I mean, the thing about Jupiter in, you know, one of the signs where it feels really comfortable, like Pisces or Sagittarius or Cancer, which, you know, is the opposite to Capricorn is that Jupiter's, you know, willing to um, have faith that, you know, even if it doesn't seem likely, you know, Jupiter believes that, um, you know, following after meaning as opposed to following after security is doable. Mm-hmm. Uh, but basically, you know, Jupiter is is willing to, you know, follow after what gives life meaning and what feeds its soul 
And it's not inherently concerned with whether or not that pays the bills. Um, yeah. Jupiter and Capricorn maybe has a little bit of trouble accessing that sense of optimism that, you know, you can follow after um, what gives your life meaning without having to sacrifice your survival or your security in the in the process. Jupiter, you know, it's uh, it tells you like what's possible. And while it's in Capricorn, it's going to tell you like it's going to tend to think or believe that, you know, uh, not much, you know, <laughs> or it's going to have a hard time, especially, you know, uh, I don't like freak out too much about Jupiter retrograde. Um, but I would say, you know, Jupiter retrograde in Cap Capricorn is a bit more conservative. It's a bit more consolidating. You know, it's it's like uh, really uh, maybe a little like extra averse to taking risks, um, the kind of risks that you know, one might take uh, when they believe that their dreams are, are possible. Now, saying that is not saying that your dreams are not possible. I wouldn't say that at all. It's just, uh, yeah, finding that the faith really, you know, daring to dream. But it sounds like you're kind of already in that process of like, you know, realizing that, you know, this isn't fulfilling for me. And maybe I need to figure out, you obviously are at least willing to consider that something better is possible. And I would say that uh, there is some emphasis with this theme um, when you get Saturn in Aries ruling the first house, because I find that Saturn in Aries, um, <laughs> this is actually kind of a, a bit of an archetypal story with, uh, to some degree. There's a weird kind of, you know, sounds almost like an overlap um, between Jupiter and Capricorn and, and Saturn in Aries, but there are similar themes that Saturn tends to struggle uh, a bit in Aries as well, because, you know, planets in Aries have this expectations of them of themselves that they are going to succeed right out of the gate, you know, that they are going to uh, charge through the enemy lines and, you know, bust through the trenches and conquer the enemy and, you know, win. But uh, Saturn, by nature, moves a lot slower than that. It's a, a cautious planet and it's um, much more of a a long-term thinking planet. And I find that an experience that a lot of people Saturn and Aries have, especially when it's prominent, is, um, you know, sort of getting handed down this expectation of success of what that means and, like, really feeling uh, like their sense of self-worth is just really wrapped up in it. And sometimes they'll get themselves into um, situations that are not fulfilling or... Um, really conducive to to happiness or, you know, sometimes long-term sustainability based on, you know, expectations that aren't really suited to them, such as, you know, being an engineer uh, when maybe maybe something else would have been better. Yeah, I was looking at, looking at Saturn and how it is uh, also retrograde. Mm -hmm. So it's a, a slow planet going, going backwards. So the theme of slowness reconsidering it's, it's yeah is is emphasized when saturn is retrograde um you know and, and ruling the ascendant um because jessica's ascendant is capricorn you know makes saturn kind of the captain of of this chart and really an important player in you know helping jessica to to realize her identity um and what direction mm -hmm. she wants her life to go in and Saturn retrograde in fall is not going to do yeah. anything quickly. Well, it's, it's going to second guess <laughs> it's, uh, things that, that it does quite quite a bit. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, second guessing is a definite theme there. 
and you know the the kind of the solution you know with saturn retrograde is always patience and just kind of accepting that like saturn standards mm-hmm. are very high and meeting those standards um yeah takes time you know it's it's like saturn is like i i think it was austin Coppock who compared saturn to cooking a turkey yeah where like you have to leave that sucker in the oven for a few hours if you're gonna get a really good you know christmas turkey um that is how saturn operates it's like i want mastery i want perfection and that's not going to happen overnight and that can be frustrating when saturn is in a sign that wants things to happen right away like oh, yeah. aries yeah it any planet that's in uh, the condition known as as fall, which means it's in the opposite of its sign of exaltation, such as you know Saturn in Aries, which exalts in Libra, uh, you kind of get um, you can get kind of extremes of behavior, or in the sense of um, continue with that analogy. It's kind of like wanting to cook the turkey too fast, and you know shoving it in the oven and like blasting you know flames on it and um, trying to eat it and like the outside is burnt, but the inside is, you know, cold and raw <laughs> or, you know, the opposite being too worried about the, the turkey coming out badly that you, you never maybe put it in the oven to begin with. You know, there, there's uh, the fear of failure mm. is, is really a, a heavy one for, for Saturn and Aries. And it's, it's kind of like the big challenge, the big obstacle. And I would say that that I mean, gets a little more emphasized when it's on the, the South node as well, mm-hmm. the, the, the expectations of of oneself can get a little uh, low and maybe, you know, can find yourself in situations where, um, you know, people might take advantage of that. It's possible, but maybe more likely is, you know, maybe the feeling like, you know, the feeling of being shortchanged, but you know, all that being said, there's quite a bit going for you in, in your chart. I actually really like while Jupiter, you know, can they both, both planets have their struggle. Uh, in those signs, they have advantages in that they are um, considered diurnal planets. They're uh, daytime planets. They do well during the day. And, you know, you were born during the day because you have the sun above the horizon. That in and of itself is going to make them a little more compatible with their environment, a little more um, able to achieve things. And even just, you know, the fact that you became an engineer, which God, I can't, I could not imagine going to engineering school. That sounds like a nightmare. <laughs> I, I would have uh, bombed horribly in engineering school. So, I mean, you should give yourself some credit for for that. Jupiter is also, you know, in its own bound, just like this little kind of house within the sign, little suite. It's like, has just, you know, some Jupiter stuff that Jupiter, you know, has access to that makes it a little more comfortable, a little more able to figure things out in Capricorn. You know, Jupiter, um, in the position that it's in, being earlier in zodiacal order, it's overcoming Saturn, you know, so it's like imposing goodness uh, on Saturn and um, Saturn has some responsibility to Jupiter because Jupiter is in Saturn's sign. So Saturn is going to be maybe a little more receptive to to what Jupiter is offering, the possibility of, of hope. But like all all things in Capricorn, that takes time maybe to, to figure out. Maybe, maybe it's going to take you some time to figure out what it is exactly you want to do. <clears throat> so yeah, just on the the subject of like really dignified placements in this chart. Mm. Um, the thing that really, really stood out to me more than anything else is the very, very close sun Uranus opposition. Oh, yeah. mm-hmm. um, the 
by far closest applying aspect in this chart. It's very close, yeah. Is the opposition between the Sun in Leo in the eighth house and Uranus in Aquarius in the second house. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as I was looking over this whole chart and I was like, oh, this is a career question. I should look at the 10th house, whatever. The sun was just screaming at me. It was like, no, Tristan, look at me, which is what the sun and Leo wants, which makes sense. But but it just like, I was like, oh, this is really, really telling me a story. Um, Because the sun is like really well placed by sign Mm -hmm. in this chart. Um, the sun rules Leo. So it, it likes being in Leo. It's like being at home. It's very comfortable. It has all of its resources available to it it Has everything it needs to succeed. And, um, there's another, you know, more minor form of sign-based dignity happening here too, where the sun is in its own triplicity, Hmm. um, which is another little sort of boost, um, to the sun in terms of, you know, enabling it to do what it wants to do and like someone who is a successful engineer like that is you know the sun and leo in a day chart is like i applied myself to something really difficult and became really successful and i'm making a lot of money at it like the sun and leo is capable of doing that there's so much like capacity to succeed um at its goals capability is not my concern at all with this chart yeah but that's but the then the thing is that like it's in this really tight opposition with Uranus. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the the Sun and Leo can succeed at what is kind of expected of it. You know, what it's expected to accomplish. In, in the eighth house, yeah. But it's hearing this call from the unknown. Um, you know, as we talked about the outer planets kind of mm-hmm. representing what is outside of yeah. you know the realm of the known and uranus it's i don't know i was i was imagining like frozen 2 with that song where she's being like called away by this mysterious song into and the um into into <laughs> yeah. the unknown yeah, yeah like i'm imagining your uranus is this like siren like you know in this mysterious wilderness like outside of your window um that's that's kind of calling you and saying there's something else out here there's something more um it's like the little mermaid it's yeah it's like it's like the little mermaid and it's it's a little frustrating because it's hard to know what exactly uranus is calling the sun to do or see um and that's made more frustrating by the fact that the sun and uranus are in houses that are are traditionally associated with concealment and invisibility mm-hmm. Um, the second and the eighth houses are like the gates of the underworld. It's very, in traditional astrology, they're very spooky. Like you, um, you can't really easily see what's going on in the second and eighth houses. So it's like, there is this, you know, your soul is being called to something, yeah. but um, it's not necessarily easy to see what it is. Or, you know, even if you can see what it is like, okay, well then how do I make it an actual thing? Like the sun and Leo, you know, wants to, like make something visible, make something obvious. Like what is the plan? I'm, I can succeed at this. It wants to express itself like pure, like in a pure way. Yeah. Like it's, yeah. It's like all about, uh, I have a terrible time 
talking about Leo in a way that doesn't sound just totally narcissistic. So <laughs> forgive me <laughs> if it sounds that way. But um, to some degree, I mean, it, it's I mean, it, it's important to have that faculty of, you know, like, yeah, it is about me. All right. You know, what I want is important. Expressing myself is important. Mm-hmm. Being authentic is important uh, because, you know, it's through that, that experience of being authentic that you're like able to actually recognize other people for their, you know, unique and authentic self. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that that's, you know, generally what the son in Leo wants to do, but there is like a, a theme that goes along with kind of what we talked about with Jupiter and, and Saturn. Um, you know, one of the more mundane, not mundane, but um, the less dramatic and more everyday uh, elements of the eighth house is the sense of, of responsibility or, or, you know, what you're kind of obliged to do. You know, like yes. pay your taxes for other people. Yeah, it's... yeah. It's it's about other people more than it's about you. It's about mm-hmm. um, uh, yeah, obligations to other people or you know expectations from other people. And the eighth house, it's kind of a, a less visible house, and it's not the sun's favorite place to be. But I bet you have great credit. <laughs> Well, yeah, that was something I really wanted to touch on was that theme with the eighth house of, you know, being accountable to others. Um, the seventh and eighth oh, yeah. houses are not, well, the, the sixth, the whole trio of the sixth, seventh and eighth, you know, those are not selfish houses. Those are houses that are about, um, you know, service or responsibility uh, or commitment to other people in your life. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the seventh and eighth are both houses of partnership. So, you know, the sun and Leo being so like dignified um, and having so much, you know, competence, it can really succeed at meeting other people's expectations and, you know, mm-hmm. doing what it feels other people um, want it to do. Uh, it's good at looking after other people. It is not a, a very selfish placement for the sun. No. Um, but it, at heart, the sun still like, you know, Kyle was saying, it still does long to express its authentic self. And then it's got mm. Uranus kind of calling it towards freedom in a way where, you know, Uranus is, is, you know, always kind of saying break free yeah. of, of what limits or restricts you. Well, it's very tied into like your livelihood too, which is a uh, second house. Yeah. And, yeah, it's yeah. almost like do something radical and wild and free, you know, yeah. and uh, that's a scary proposition, especially these days, right? To like pursue oh, yeah. a livelihood that feeds your soul as much as it pays the bills. Yeah. It's not it's not easy to do. Well, yeah. And in the eighth house too, I mean, it's a some of the themes of the eighth house is that uh, there's a scariness to it in that like there's an uncertainty, you know, you can't quite see where you're going. Mm-hmm. Um, the sun Maybe it thinks it's moving up, thinks it's moving towards the ninth house, um, but it's actually um, being pulled back by, you know, diurnal motion and stuff <laughs> to, to the to the seventh, which most of the time isn't that bad of a place. I mean, I guess for the sun, it, it is setting, but, you know, uh, by like medieval standards, um, the sun is what they called it in, in haze, basically like meets all the conditions to make it be able to express itself fully, but it's just in like uh, a more tucked away house that, you know, is sort of harder to reach from maybe the perspective of the first house. Mm-hmm. But it does have this um, sort of mitigating condition where uh, the midheaven is at about five degrees Scorpio and the sun's at two degrees Leo. And while the midheaven is very fast moving and it's 
kind of moving a little bit away from the sun. Uh, it's like within that like three degree range, which is, is helpful for, for the sun. It, it kind of gives it um, an outlet, an easier outlet to, to express itself. It's maybe not all about, you know, other people. I mean, it's about, you know, what you want to do. See, the midheaven is kind of like an aspirational point among other things. Yeah, like what, what do you want to be known for? Yeah. How do you want people to remember you? What kind of story um, do you want people to tell when they tell your story? That's your midheaven is kind of caught up in all of that. Mm-hmm. And uh, and it's ruled by Mars. It's interesting. The the 10th house is ruled by Venus and the midheaven is ruled by Mars. And both of those planets are kind of squashed together in Gemini in the sixth house. Yeah. Um, and Mars and Gemini in the sixth house ruling the midheaven, which is associated with career, it makes a ton of sense for someone who would be good at engineering yeah like mars yeah mars is a technician you know mars like, is a technician uh, yeah. um and in you know in gemini too having that ability to you know solve problems and you know it, it makes mars a little bit smarter it's the mars and gemini in the 6th house is very mechanical it's very good at troubleshooting problems oh yeah it's happy to do really demanding work um the 6th house yeah, we know uh, Mars and Gemini in the sixth house, right? We sure do. And <laughs> he's very good at all of those things. I'm sure yeah. he'd make a good engineer, but um, I don't think it would make him happy either. He'd be good at it, but it wouldn't yeah. make him happy. He makes furniture, right? He does, but not as not as a job. But yeah, that is a skill he has. He can he can build anything. It's mechanical, yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, like in this, the sixth house is in traditional astrology, the house where Mars rejoices. Um, this, the sixth house is full of crises and problems that need to be solved and missions that need to be carried out services that need to be performed. And Mars is like, yes, give me a mission. Give me problems to solve. Yeah. Work um, to just, yeah. yeah and, and work to do. So Mars is happy there, Hustling. but you know, poor Venus is also yeah. in there and Venus is actually ruling the 10th house. So like a similar, there's similar symbolism there having to do with career and aspiration. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Venus isn't necessarily the most comfortable um, in the sixth house, you know, cuddling up to Mars. They're not like really closely conjunct, but they're, you know, in the same sign in the same house close enough together that they're having a conversation. And since, the sixth house is such a Marsy house already. It is kind of like Venus is is in Mars's house a little bit, and like Mars is a soulful planet, yeah, yeah, who is all about creativity and desire and joy, and all this like troubleshooting and concern with like healing and like helping people out, you know. Yeah, well, yeah, Venus in the sixth house is a good placement for healing. Nurse or medical technician is popping in for my head. sure. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a good thought. Um, that would oh, put yeah. both Venus and Mars to work yeah. doing some kind of healing work. Yeah, Mars will heal. <laughs> Mar- and Mars will. Mars is a good a good medic because Mars is good at responding to emergencies yep. and you know dealing with messes and injuries, and cutting stuff out of your body. Yeah, <laughs> cut, <laughs> cut <laughs> as well as stuff that should you know and, and yep. more. Uh, you know, it depends on what you want to do with it. But yeah, it's. It would be understandable for Venus to maybe feel a bit stifled in this situation. Um, You know, Venus is, is about what feeds your soul Mm -hmm. um, and about what brings you joy and what brings you pleasure. Um, So I think, you know, 
it already sounds like you're you're striving to find a, a balance here where you're certainly capable of doing the Mars stuff and you're capable of doing it as a career and being known for it and being known for being good at it. Mm-hmm. But, it, you know, it, it doesn't sound like it is feeding the Venus part of you um, mm. that that needs to find meaning and joy. Um, you know, Mar- Mars is just like, just give me something to do. Just give me something to take action yeah. on. Venus needs like a meaning behind what, what she does. Yeah. Um, and, and Venus is, is less about work and more about, um, pleasure and relaxation and recreation. Um, and, you know, Venus can be very helpful when applied to uh, livelihood or career because, you know, Venus has a healing touch. Venus is good with people. Venus is great with the arts, with music, with visual arts, with performance, with all that kind Mm -hmm. of stuff. Um, but at the end of the day for Venus, it isn't so much about meeting a career goal as it is about feeding her soul. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I can, I can see that kind of that tension taking place in this chart. Um, and, you know, I, I wish I had more sort of practical advice on, on how to resolve that tension. I mean, um, yeah. I guess maybe, yeah, I don't know. It sounds like you might Kyle. Uh, I mean, I see uh, there's a lot of like, I don't know. There's a, there's something coming together in my mind, and I guess it, I mean it, it. It's gonna kind of boil down to the same thing. But you know what Venus and Mars want to do, or are gonna be good at, or uh, it's gonna be revealed a little bit by Mercury. You know, Mercury is in the eighth mm-hmm. uh, house in Leo, but it's also with the Sun. Um, so I mean, uh, Mercury is actually pretty strong in the sense that uh, it is with a very you know dignified Sun, and it's also uh, was it making a helical rising? Yeah, it might be. And it's very fast moving. It's um, basically it's it's right at that point, like right where this Mercury is about to emerge from the beams. Um, so it's like about to emerge, emerge from the beams of the sun, which means like it's about to be visible. It's about to um, no longer be hidden by the light of the sun. Um, now in the eighth house, it's going to be, it, you know, it tends to be a little less prominent, a little less about like, Ooh, look at me. I'm Mercury. Uh, <laughs> I feel like there's a theme of, um, man, there's so much you could do with this. Like in <laughs> my mind is, uh, you know, therapy, um, like, uh, be like consulting worker. Um, mm-hmm. uh, investment. <laughs> If you want to do it, that's the thing. Is actually like you have like, I'm assuming you have great credit. I, I'm just I feel confident about that. I you know you never know for sure, um, but like the eighth house, uh, like a well set up eighth house can be really good for um, for investments. You know, um, I feel like you could. I mean, you can like get yourself. It's the thing is I think that maybe for you, Jessica, you know, security is gonna be really important. You know, you're you're maybe not gonna want to like venture off and pursue a, a dream. Until you have like um, a certain amount of security, maybe established, uh, would be my educated guess. Uh, but that seems like pretty within reach. Um, and you also have like I don't know a lot of significations for just like being willing to work your ass off. And I think a lot of people who have like big ideas and big dreams, you know, no one in particular, <laughs> uh, but the you know the willingness to do that long, hard grinding work that you know takes a long time. Uh, to accomplish, to without maybe really immediate results, not everybody has that uh, within easy access. 
I, I, I see that like, you know, the, the resources internally and possibly externally are there for you to, you know, pursue something. I think the hard part is, is figuring it out. And, uh, you know, the moon in Scorpio in the 11th house kind of goes along with this theme of, you know, you get like dreams in the 11th house and the moon in Scorpio tends to be a little uncertain, a little, um, fearful, be afraid of being, you know, exposed, being seen. It's, it's a very, in a very visible position. Actually, it's pretty close to the, the midheaven. Um, but that can be uncomfortable for a Scorpio moon. So that's kind of like the big struggle. One of the big struggles. <laughs> there, are, there are numerous ones, but uh, can be one fellow, is, is, fellow Scorpio moon. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, is the you know the visibility. You know, maybe you want it, but it's really scary. So yeah, I mean, I guess my my practical advice is, um, if you already know what you want to do, don't assume that like it's impossible. I don't know. I, I would say that you, you have assets. You have. Um, skills like i don't know like this is like the seems like the chart of somebody who like i don't know the story of, of <laughs> i mean i see the engineer and that doesn't like their job but i also see like the the person that you know figured out that they didn't like what they were doing but like used the situation that they were in to uh crawl out of it it's kind of easy to get yourself trapped in uh like the golden handcuffs you know the job that pays really well but but it's a little soul-sucking but it's nice when that job pays well enough for you to, to, to save and, um, you know, plan your escape. I think maybe the, the troubles is figuring out where you're trying to escape to. And also just, you know, having that kind of patience because the escape plan, you know, might be long term. Yeah. You know, just looking at Saturn ruled chart and, you know, having to, I mean, the, the wonderful thing about, um, being Saturn rolled is the gifts of resourcefulness that Saturn gives. Like mm -hmm. I think the way Kyle just put it was really nice where like, you know, you're able to use a situation that isn't ideal in order to get yourself into a situation that is, that is yeah. Saturn's like one of Saturn's greatest gifts oh, that yeah. he grants us is here's a shitty situation. And here's how you can use that exact situation to get yourself into a better one. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that is definitely something I also see with this chart. One of my favorite um, Saturn and Aries stories is Douglas Mac MacArthur, who had Saturn and Aries, I believe, on his midheaven uh, in the ninth house. So uh, he was uh, one of the, the famous generals um, who was responsible for like the Pacific Theater, but more or less responsible for um, all the land campaigns and, you know, that, that part of World War II kind of leading the army to defeat the, the Japanese. And he's kind of a controversial figure, but um, there's something about Saturn and Aries that uh, hard scrabble is the word that comes to my mind. Something about like, uh, you know, once um, it knows what its mission is, uh, what its direction is, then it, it can grind on into eternity <laughs> until, until the mission is, is accomplished. Uh, that's a very good way of putting it yeah it, but i think maybe the probably the problem is it's like you know when other people are expecting things from you you know like oh okay i'll do that you know you're, you're maybe doing it out of fear of failing of failing letting other people down but mm -hmm. you know maybe more of a struggle to find you know your own authority you find like your own uh dream that you want to pursue uh, that's valid and okay 
and that, you know, maybe not meeting other people's expectations of what you should be doing uh, is not the end of the world. Maybe the willingness to go against other people's expectations, you know, can be a point of pride. Well, I think you've said everything I was thinking. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. No, no, it's good. You said it better than I could, so... It's rare. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, you know, yeah. I hope I hope that's helpful, Jessica. I mean, I guess definitely answered your your, your question. <laughs> you weren't necessarily asking for advice, but it does show up in your chart. But I, I would say that I, I don't see you locked in in that that situation for the rest of your life by by any means. Yeah. It's actually interesting. You're in a, a second house perfection year, but that's also which means like the second house is activated. So concerns about money, livelihood, how you're making money. But the fifth house is also activated. Oh, that's beautiful. Because, yeah. So like, how can I make money doing something that I love, that I enjoy, that is fun? And yeah, that, that I mean, the, the struggle is, the struggle is real. I believe you. But you know, that, that struggle can be directed constructively. I think you'll figure it out. But yeah, anything you want to add, Tristan? No, you've uh, you've said everything I was thinking, basically. <laughs> and uh, all, the, all the advice that I would give without knowing more um, yeah. about other, you know, possible areas of interest or things that that you've already tried and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. Dialogue for that. Mm-hmm. So, um, but yeah, I think we will wrap up the show for today. Uh, anything... Any any uh, good news? Any, any cool stories to tell us? <laughs> well, I will. I will first. Uh, I will first thank our wonderful listeners for their questions. Um, thank you, Haley, for that great question about Pluto, and thank you so much, Jessica, for sharing your chart with us. And uh, you know, I that's a sticky situation, um, and I hope you. I wish you all the best, and I hope you find what gives your soul joy. Um, in terms of what I have going on, uh, I am taking natal chart readings uh, as well as synastry readings over Zoom. Um, you can book with me by visiting my website at badsignastrology.ca. Um, so I could do natal chart consultations, I can do synastry consultations, and I can look at your transits and perfections and stuff that are coming up. Um, And I am also on social media, on Instagram and Tumblr at Bad Sign Astrology. Um, I've been working on quite a bit of writing um, on my blog at Bad Sign Astrology on Tumblr. I have- You've been doing some really good writing lately. Thank you. Like really impressed. I've uh, been slowly but surely working on a series about the planets. Um, I have just finished Venus uh, last week. I've only got two planets left. So um, I write about, you know, a little bit about um, the planet's significations throughout the history of astrology, starting with Hellenistic all the way up to modern. And then I, you know, write a bit about how I use those planets and interpret them in my own practice. Um and I recently put up a piece on the houses, um, just a, a beginner's guide to the houses in astrology that includes uh, links to more free resources. So if you're learning astrology, I have some of those teaching resources up and available for you on my blog. 
The one thing to know about me is I cannot bullshit a, a compliment. Um, and uh, I would highly recommend Tristan's blog. Uh, it's really good, especially if you're like just starting out learning about the significations of the houses and planets. Uh, it's really good and like easy to understand. Like it's not just all uh, astro, astro, uh, astro jargon. <laughs> lingo, astro jargon. Yeah, it's not all astro jargon. Um, as for me, I uh, still offering uh, birth chart consultations. Um, the window on the donation-based readings are um, closing. You know, I'm, I'm going to maintain that offering. And, you know, as much as it's for all you lovely listeners and, and just people out there, I also, it's an offering to Mars and Saturn because, you know, they're in my my uh, fifth and eighth house. And I feel like I have to, um, you know, working with that square, I, I've uh, had a lot of energy to uh, work on passion projects. Um, but I think I'm realizing that, they, you know, they're not necessarily uh, going to get away with doing things that are just for me. You know, I don't know. I feel like I have to, to give an offering uh, to the I'm not going to break that down. But, um, yeah, it's my 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 offering. So, uh, you know, my website, KylePierceAstrology.com. You can go there, book a reading. Yeah, that's it for right now. Yeah, thank every thank you everyone for listening. Thank you for your question, Haley. That was fun diving into Pluto. And best of luck to you, Jessica. Bye for now. <laughs> Bye for now. If you have a question you would like to hear answered on Astrology Hotline, shoot us an email with your question and your birth chart info at astrologyhotlinepod at gmail.com. Attention listeners, Astrology Hotline is at war. At war with unanswered astrology questions. We have the weapons, we have the training, but to achieve ultimate victory, we need your help. I want you to take out your phone, open up Apple Podcasts, subscribe to Astrology Hotline, crush all five stars, and rain down a righteous review of furious satisfaction. I want you to open up Spotify, subscribe to Astrology Hotline, and launch one high-speed thumb of flaming death at that five-star rating. And I want you to find the gnarliest, most insidious astrology question you can find. Email it to astrologyhotlinepod at gmail.com so we can slaughter it mercilessly on the show. Together, we can conquer astrology one question at a time.